Hello and welcome everyone to the fifth CSF podcast with a focus on psoriatic arthritis. We'll be bringing you new episodes monthly alongside our AXPAR podcast. We'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of BSA. I'm Peter Nash, Professor of the School of Medicine, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane. And we're joining today, fortunately, with Philip Meese, Professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine and Director of the Rheumatology Research at the Swedish Medical Centre in Seattle, USA, and Laura Coates, an Associate Professor, NIHR Clinical Scientist and Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Oxford Psoriatic Arthritis Centre. Hi, everybody, and we'll hand over to you, Laura. Lovely. Thank you, Peter. Um, so we're discussing a couple of papers today, and they're looking at two different aspects of PSA treatment. Um, so the first publication that we're reviewing is looking at the effects of sex and gender on disease characteristics, on treatment impact, and on treatment persistence. And I think this has really been at the forefront of a lot of research recently, as we've discovered more and more about the differences um, and we'll then move on to discuss a publication exploring the long-term safety profile of gazelkmab in the treatment of both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So for that first paper around the differences uh, between sex in disease characteristics, I will hand over to Philip. Thank you very much, Laura. So our first paper is entitled Gender-Specific Differences in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis Receiving Ustekinumab or TNF Inhibitor real-world data, authored by Arno van Crick and colleagues. So we know that there is an equal frequency of psoriatic arthritis between males and females, so it's equigender as a disease. But we really haven't had consistent data on whether there's a difference in how the disease impacts females versus males or how they respond to treatment. We're beginning to get more of that research coming along. We've known over time that there are some haircut differences. For example, uh, at baseline, women uh, may have quite a bit of uh, peripheral arthritis, enthesitis, and so on, and, and experience it more severely uh, than men. And this comes out in composite measures where pain is asked about as, as well as impact on function. And men may have more severe axial disease, for example. And in general, in what we're beginning to find is uh, in, in rheumatic diseases across the board that there may be some important sex differences, uh, which, and some of us feel that if women have worse outcomes, that it may be due to a certain greater degree of fibromyalginous in the female population compared to men. But it's increasingly becoming apparent that there are other factors as well, including potential differences in immunobiology, differences in hormones, differences in the way behaviors of males versus females in interacting with their clinicians. So in this particular study, the PSA bio study explored how sex factors into the characteristics of the disease and the impact of treatment on psoriatic arthritis patients. The study cohort comprised 512 females, 417 males, and they had a similar duration of disease, about 6.7 to 6.9 years, respectively. 
At the 12 month mark, 58% of female patients achieved C-DAPSA low disease activity, the target of treatment, contrasting with 80% of the male patients. Quite a difference. Similarly, minimal disease activity, the criteria that was developed by Laura Coates and Philip Hellowell, was attained by a third of female patients and over half of the males. And a further observation was that the lower treatment persistence among females and males, 22% of females stopped treatment versus 12% of males. And the pre predominant reason for discontinuation uh, was lack of effectiveness. So in this real world data exploration from the PSA bio study, we see that females uh, had a more severe disease than males and uh, worse treatment outcomes uh, than males, as well as stopping or switching therapy more frequently. So this is uh, yet another uh, study that teaches us about this, this interesting difference between uh, females and males. And I should mention before we turn it over to general discussion that there was a, a, a great um, study that was uh, presented by Leahy Etter at the very recent ACR uh, Congress in which she uh, looked at 52 different clinical trials with psoriatic arthritis uh, or testing drugs in psoriatic arthritis and found uh, that only about 20% of those trials characterized differences between males and females at baseline, and only about 30% of them reported on differences in treatment response between males and females. And what was shown was that with essentially all mechanisms of action, whether it be a TNF inhibitor or an IL-1223 or an IL-17 inhibitor, that that females did worse than males. They had less treatment response achieving an ACR20 outcome. Interestingly, in that meta-analysis, uh, there was virtually no difference when patients were taking JAK inhibitors or TIC2 inhibitors between males and females. We really don't understand about why that particular observation was made. So to you, Laura, what do you think about some of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a really good example of the fact that you don't know until you look, that um, people never thought to break it down by sex. And, and so it hasn't been done, particularly in the older studies. And as we've become more aware of it being an issue, people are starting to look into it more. And obviously what we need is really dedicated research that looks into this in much more detail. It's not enough just to compare men and women in a post hoc analysis we, we need to really understand the reasons underpinning this a lot more. Um, so I think it's definitely an argument for, for more research. Um, and I think it may potentially change how we design studies as well. So we've now got um, studies in process that are stratifying for sex in the randomization to make sure that the patients are equally balanced in the different groups. Um, we are just finishing up um, an active comparator treatment study in early PSA. We've got 11 patients left to recruit, and I wish we'd stratified for sex when we designed the study, um, but that was back in 2016, and we, we just hadn't really thought of it. But it's definitely something, I think, particularly as we hopefully move more to active comparator studies, 
and kind of strategic studies where we're not just comparing against placebo, but we're maybe looking for smaller differences. I think it would be really important to bring that into the study design as well. Yes, I, I was going I to suggest stratif stratification at baseline, and that's exactly the point you brought up. My biggest area of concern is in the expo area, the axial involvement, where women have changes related to pregnancy on MRI and sacroiliac joints. They have inflammatory sounding symptoms, MRI changes, and then they get labelled. And once you're labelled and start a biologic and don't respond, you cycle endlessly through very expensive medications, and it can be a real difficulty so stratification of baseline, I think, in PSA is critical. And just to be aware of the false positive imaging that's seen in some of the AXPAR uh, studies that Xenophon and others have shown. I noticed with, with interest that one of the most recent trials that was just reported prior to ACR, the ARGO trial with sonalokumab, an IL-17 A and F inhibitor, that's the nanobody, they took this message to heart and they did stratify by by sex. I think we're going to learn a lot more because uh, again, Leahy Etter, who's a pioneer in this area, is leading a GRAPA study called SAGE in which uh, we are going to be looking at about 400 patients, half male, half female, and looking at everything under the sun, uh, immunobiologic markers, hormones, stool microbiome differences, gender, which is different than sex. So how people uh, kind of characterize themselves from uh, treatment beha or behaviors. So I think this will, the, this, this is a fruitful area for ongoing research. Excellent, thank you. Laura, do you want to keep going with the second paper? Sure, um, yeah, so as I mentioned, the second paper is around gazelkmab. So this is a long-term safety analysis of Pazelkamab, and they've brought together um, basically all of the clinical trials <coughs> in both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Um, so this is a paper that I was involved in that was led by Bruce Strober and other colleagues um, and really aimed to look at as much safety data as we could pull together in both the psoriasis and the psoriatic arthritis studies. So obviously we know that psoriatic arthritis is gonna need long-term therapy and although we want drugs that work, we also want drugs that are safe. That's often a big concern that patients raise uh, in terms of both short-term safety and long-term safety. And so the choice of biologics that we have in clinic now, um, I think safety does become an issue. We've got some drugs with particular concerns and particular diseases or, um, or phenotypes of patients. So it's really good to have some detailed safety data. Um, so this, uh, study included 11 different trials. Um, it involved over 4,000 patients, uh, the larger group from psoriasis studies and a smaller group from psoriatic arthritis studies. So the first thing that they looked at was the placebo-controlled trials um, uh, or section of the trials where you have a really good comparison between patients receiving a placebo and patients who are receiving gazelkmab. And that's obviously for a limited period of time but it gives us that comparative data. So there was a smaller proportion of patients receiving placebo, nearly 400 patient years, uh, and over 2,000 patients who received gazelkamab, and nearly 900 patient years, so more data in the gazelkamab group. But essentially in that placebo-controlled phase of both the psoriasis and the psoriatic arthritis studies, when they were pooled, it showed very comparable rates of adverse events in both groups. 
and the same for infection as well. So 76 versus 72 um, per 100 patient years for infections um, and having side effects that are basically similar to placebo is clearly about as good as you can expect to get in terms of safety of a medication. Um, the incidence rate for serious adverse events, for AEs requiring stopping medication, um, and malignancy and MACE were all very low and again were similar between gazelkamab and placebo. But obviously we want to look in the longer term as well. So placebo controlled portions of studies, thankfully for patients, are time limited. They're going to be, you know, three months, four months, six months. Um, and beyond that, then patients are all going to end up on gazelkamab. So it's important for the longer term data to then just look at safety events among those receiving gazelkamab to see if we see a change over time, to see if being on the drug for a year or two years or three years um, changes that safety profile. And again, here, I think this data was very reassuring. So very similar rates, sometimes even a little bit lower when you compare to that placebo control period. So it doesn't seem to be that the drug builds up or you get you know, increasing number of adverse events over time. The, the risk for infections, malignancy, MACE, adverse events didn't seem to increase. Um, in the psoriasis studies, they had no opportunistic infections at all. Um, in the psoriatic arthritis studies, there were just three cases. And they looked obviously by sex, uh, given the previous discussion, also by age, by BMI, and by previous biologic use. And those rates of adverse events were really, really consistent. So I think this does give us um, a drug or a, a mode of action in terms of IL-23 with a really um, positive safety profile. Um, this data included over 4,000 patients, over 10,000 patient years, and essentially the rates of adverse events look similar to placebo, and that continues being the case into long-term follow-up for up to five years. So I think this is a real benefit for the IL-23 inhibitors. It's, it's a particular unique issue with these drugs that I think gives us a lot of reassurance about using them um, and particularly potentially makes them uh, an ideal option for people who would otherwise be at higher risk. So patients where we're worried about infection, um, patients with a lot of other comorbidities where we really have safety as a key issue for that patient in front of us. Thanks, Laura. So a couple of things to, uh, to ask. So do you think it comes a time where we can stop TB screening quantiferons and scans for the 17s and the 23s? Or, it, or we're probably going to do it anyway on the way through to get there. But do you think there'll ever come a day where that uh, may not be necessary? And secondly, if we can't split the biologics on efficacy, should the treatment algorithm be reconsidered and the safer drugs promoted a little before the drugs we've been using for 20 years that do carry adverse effects that we're just used to looking after and managing? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, in psoriatic arthritis, basically all of the drugs have similar outcomes for arthritis. Um, there isn't a lot to choose between them. So the things that help us decide on a drug in clinic are you know severity of psoriasis and presence of inflammatory bowel disease but also comorbidities and kind of safety risk and that's going to be things like tb exposure um 
any previous uh, infections that we're worried about, or just patients with bad COPD, for example, who get recurrent infections that are manageable, but obviously we don't really want to make things worse. So I think safety is a really good differentiator and that's definitely where aisle 23 kind of shines here. Um, in terms of screening for TB, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we definitely just still do it because we've always done it and we do it for all of the drugs the same. Um, I think also we particularly do it around our first drug. So we do sometimes repeat it, but not always. If somebody's switching from one biologic to another, we won't always repeat the TB screening. So if you're potentially starting maybe an IL-23 and don't feel you need to screen, then you need to remember to screen if you end up switching them, for example, to a TNF later. So I wonder if we'll just end up doing it on everybody as we start therapy. Um, our dermatologists do that screening before conventional drugs. So before they start methotrexate, they screen for TB. So they do it at a slightly earlier point than us, um, but they do it before conventional drugs. So I think it probably will stay. But obviously, if we're thinking about sites that have much higher endemic risk for TB, the higher risk of patients getting newly infected. So you might have screened them and they might have been negative, but six months down the line, they've been exposed to TB. Then clearly this is a benefit for these newer mode of action drugs. Yeah, I'll get Philip's thoughts in a sec, but the biggest risk for us is someone doing so well on their biologic, they want to go for a holiday in India where they get exposed. Apparently, if you travel on public transport twice for 15 minutes in India, you're exposed to TB. Phil, what do you think about the treatment algorithm and whether, given efficacy is similar, some of the newer agents might be promoted above the ones we've used for a long time for certain patients and then the screening issue? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, what I find is that uh, in the process of discussion with patients, they really do pay attention to the safety uh, aspect. And I find myself uh, more and more uh, as I, after I finished describing this, the, the like the relatively pristine uh, side effect profile for the IL-23 inhibitors, patients really gravitate toward wanting to be on them if, as long as they feel that the efficacy is going to be similar. So that's an important point. The other area where this becomes pertinent has to do uh, with combination of biologics. Um, and we are taking part, for example, in the affinity trial, where one of the arms of this study is a combination of a TNF inhibitor, golimumab, uh, with the uh, IL-23 inhibitor, guzelcomab, and comparing it to guzelcomab alone in psoriatic arthritis. And this is a trial that follows on the heels of a successful uh, trial in ulcerative colitis, where the combination of a TNF inhibitor and an IL-23 inhibitor worked better than either drug alone. And what we are, what we are finding in practice is that we're, we're gravitating toward, uh, if, if we need to use a combination off-label in a more refractory patient, we like the idea of, of combining a more pristine safety side uh, profile drug with maybe one that has a little bit less pristine uh, profile. So this TNF inhibitor and NIL-23 inhibitor combination, for example, we're pretty comfortable with. Uh, and, and so I think that that's 
important in our equation in the future as we think about combinations. And that's happening at home. We're not only allowed to prescribe one biologic at a time, but we're finding that the rumor might start the TNF. And if there's a breakthrough of either skin or something, the derms will add in the, the 23 or the 17. As you say, no safety penalty obvious, and it is being done on the ground. So um, any other comments that anyone would like to make? All good? Yeah, yeah all good. So, um, thank you for joining us for this PSA podcast brought to you by the CSF. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you did, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from so that you don't miss any future episodes. If you want to read more about what we discussed today, head over to cytokinesignaling.com where you'll find the detailed summary slides of each of the papers. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>